on the show talking about her solo trip through Africa on a Yamaha TT600. The show began with Heather talking about an incident where she'd hired a guide to lead her through the wilderness on her bike, but it turned out that the guide just got them lost and they found themselves eventually on the this remote shoreline of this lake and that had taken a tremendous effort to get there. And the guide was just continually promising her, you know, a little bit further to the next town, not much further, and off they went further into the wilderness. And just when it seemed they got to a point where it was too difficult to continue and they would likely starve and die on this remote lakeshore, a fishing boat appeared. But when they attempted to flag the boat down for help, the fishermen just ignored them because in that part of Africa, at that time, it was a lawless area known for pirates and criminals. So the fishermen were wise to ignore any locals standing there trying to get their attention. There was nothing left for Heather to do but to strip off all her clothes and jump up and down to show that she was white and not from the area, not a local. That got them rescued. But by the time they got back to the lodge, where it should have been a celebration, this unreliable guide began demanding his fee, despite the fact that he'd only managed to get them lost and risk their lives. He campaigned his friends and began to rally them for support. At the point where the situation could have turned into something very ugly, Heather stole off in the early morning, jumped on her motorcycle, and made a run for it. They heard the motorcycle start, but the last she saw of her guide was him running behind her, yelling. Well, the rest of that story is on that episode. Of course, we'll put a link in the show notes of this one so you can go back and listen to it. But Heather eventually finished up exploring Africa and moved on to London, England, where she met some friends, picked up a job as a motorcycle courier, and continued her adventure. And that's where our story begins today. And I can promise you that this story has all the elements of a great tale, and it's all true. It involves motorcycles, exploring, adventure, sex, drugs, rock and roll, and a death sentence. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Green Chili Adventure Gear makes American-made, heavy-duty luggage systems for all makes of motorcycles. You can strap any dry bag to your bike and turn it into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping systems. Their website, greenchiliadv.com. Hey, Max BMW has four locations. They've been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They've got a load of parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door. They've got an incredible parts fiche online for you to look at and order your parts, look through exactly what you need. They've got an e-rider newsletter that's free to sign up for. MaxBMW.com. M-A-X-B-M-W.com. 
the tire pump that I have on my bike sits in a soft pannier and it's been crushed many times when the bike has been dropped on a hard surface. It's bent, it's dinted, it's, it's really taken some abuse. It's called a cycle pump. Yep, the award-winning cycle pump made by Best Rest. Get one for yourself. Cyclepump.com. Well, you know, it's not even guesswork. It's a proven fact that you will get more miles from your chain by oiling it regularly. Here's what you got to look at. The Moto Breeze chain oiler. It's got no moving parts, got no electrical parts. It runs off of air pressure and it's got vacuum connections that take the oil down and deposit it onto a felt pad that goes directly onto your chain. An ounce of oil gets you a thousand miles or 1600 kilometers. Motobreeze.com. There's two eyes in there. Motobreeze.com. Ellis was brought up in the outback of Australia and began riding motorcycles at an early age. As an adult, she worked in a mine, and then one day it occurred to her that she wanted to explore the world by motorcycle. Her trip took her to Africa and beyond. And a few years back, we had Heather on the show to talk about her book that she wrote about the African portion of her trip called Ubuntu, One Woman's Motorcycle Odyssey Across Africa. Today, we get the rest of the story. We begin in London, we have some fun, and then we're off on an unimaginable journey that eventually becomes a race against time. Yeah, Heather Ellis, and I'm from the Yarra Ranges near Melbourne in Victoria, Australia, and I'm a writer and author of two motorcycle travel memoirs, uh, Ubuntu and Timeless on the Silk Road and Odyssey from London to Hanoi. Heather, great to get you back on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Last time we talked, I think it was a couple of years ago now, we talked about your, your book Ubuntu and um, we, we talked about the, the adventure that you had that you ultimately wrote about. I think, think that's where we left off, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, yeah. So that uh, that book ends when I'm leaving North Africa from Mauritania, and uh, and then sort of the there was a, a twist at the end of that story. So a lot of uh, readers were sort of waiting to find out what happened next, and so then uh, I wrote um, Timeless on the Silk Road, and that story starts in London, and um got travels on the through Europe, Turkey along the Silk Roads of Central Asia and then down through China to uh, Vietnam to Hanoi. And from there, I, I, um, I then had to end the journey and fly back to Australia. Now, I'm going to put a link in the show notes here to our last talk that we had. And uh, that way, if anyone wants to hear the, the story up until this point, they can hear that. But OK, so from from here, you, you leave Africa and you ended up going back, I believe, to the UK. Um, what, what did you end up doing when you got back to the UK? Um so where I, I ended up working as a motorcycle courier. Now, this might sound like a little bit of a crazy occupation, but it, to me, being in London was part, was part of my journey. I wanted my journey to continue. I didn't want to actually like put my motorcycle, which is a Yamaha TT600, you know, in a garage and then work like in a bar or an office. Um, I, I just wanted the journey to continue. I wanted that you know, people who have read Ubuntu will find that I have this kind of close relationship with my motorcycle. And I think a lot of people who do travel um, with a with a, 
a, a machine, whether it's a motorcycle or, a, or another vehicle or even a, a bicycle, for a long time, it, it sort of develops its own personality. So um, when I got to London, I'd, I'd actually been told about motorcycle careering before I left Australia. And also I met some English um, guys traveling on motorcycles. I met them in Nairobi and they told me about um, motorcycle careering in London. And I thought, oh, what a great thing to do because, you know, deep down I am a motorcyclist and the thought of riding around London um, was was quite thrilling to me. And in, in what actually happened is I, I sort of like to call it where I earned my stripes as a motorcyclist because, um, you know, I was good at riding. I've always ridden a motorcycle. I started riding when I was about eight years old on like a little um, you know, Honda 50 um, little bike. Um, I was living on a sheep station in Outback Australia and mustering sheep. Um, and so I rode bikes all through my childhood and teenage years. You're going to have to explain um, what a sheep station is. Oh, okay. It's like a big sheep farm. You know, it's actually this particular sheep um, farm um, was 7,000. Um, no, sorry. Yes, 700 square Miles, seven um, hundred square miles. Miles, yeah. So, and it ran about, um, I think it was about fifteen thousand sheep, um, or ten, ten to fifteen thousand sheep. And um, so that was when I was about eight to eight years to about eleven years. And my parents were actually at this sheep station mining opal at a nearby. Um, opal field um, and we were based on the sheep station so um, which was owned by my my uncle um, so I'd always ridden motorcycles and then when I got to London getting back to the motorcycle careering um, it was it was just you know that um, getting around on the bike and and um, you know getting through the traffic um, and in a way like I describe in the Timeless on the Silk Road. There's a there's about four chapters at at the beginning of the book that are about London, you know, and 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 into Europe before we actually get to the Silk Road. But it's a very important part of the book that that sets everything up, and it and it's sort of it, it's intense from the very first chapter really of this this book. But um, it was sort of you know I I, I describe myself as a road warrior because I was sort of dressed in black leather, you know, you wear motocross boots because, you know, you're out in the traffic all day. You might have to, you know, like bump your legs on car um, fenders, you know, you're with the trail bike, the TT600 is a big enduro bike, so I could just jump it up over on traffic islands and ride down traffic islands and jump it back into the traffic again. And, and, um, and it was like you could – you know, you read the traffic lights, you know, you could get around very quickly. And also I was making really good money. It was at that time like, um, you know, £600 a week, um, which was probably about a 1000 US dollars, I think, you know, eight, wow. nine hundred thousand US dollars. Well, I thought um, to be a courier in London, you really had to study and know all the streets and all that. Or is that just for taxi yeah. drivers? Well, you di- well you did. I mean, and this was before. It's not like you had a GPS and you could sort of, you know, have something tell you where to go. I had they call it the A to Z of London, so I had to kind of memorise where I was going because you can't be stopping all the time and checking your map. You sort of had to memorise it and then off you went. Um, but the great thing is with motorcycle careering is they have 
um, a number of companies that um, want to have packages delivered and you're going back and forward to a lot of similar addresses all the time. So then you get to know where you're going and it, it just makes it so much quicker. So when you start, the first sort of, you know, three, two to three weeks was like really finding your way, learning your way around London. Um, and then when you know where you're going, you, you just do it very quickly and you can sort of just, you know, concentrate on on, on getting there in the quickest possible way um, because the faster you are, the more money money you make. And um, and, it, and it tends to be with motorcycle careers, um, you know, there's, you know, there's one rule and that is there are no rules, you know. They just sort of a little bit – it's a bit of a crazy world and I sort of described that world and, and it was um, – and it was also, you know, a bit of a um, an underworld as well. There's a sort of a, an underworld – of people that are kind of sort of mixed in with, and and it was, it was very it was very exciting. It was one of, a very exciting time of my life, and I find even today I ride a um a Triumph Thruxton, and um it's a nine hundred cc sort of cafe race type of bike, very beautiful, and I ride that into the city of Melbourne. I'm about an hour out of Melbourne, and um you know I just riding in there, you know, the traffic, um, like rush hour in the morning or when I'm coming home in the afternoon and I see all this traffic and it's like this thrill, you know, yippee, I get to filter through all this traffic and weave in and out. I mean, I'm not going fast. It's not like lane splitting. It's all, you know, over here it's legal to filter. I think it is in some states in America as well, as long as you're going on, you know, under 40 kilometres an hour. Um, and it, it's actually a safer way to get through traffic because if you're wedged between, you know, with a car in front and behind you and everyone using their mobile phones, you know, they're going to run into into the back of you. So when you're filtering, you're using that space between the cars, between in, you know, between the lanes where nobody will go. So it's it's actually quite safe. So, so what's the thrill in that? What what do you get excited about when you see it? Is, um, is it the skill that it takes to do it? Exercising the skill? The skill? is the skill it's like you know um getting through picking the gaps um getting through those gaps and then seeing other lanes where there's a gap you know you can kind of read the cars and you can see up ahead oh there's a truck there or cars are wedged a bit closer so i can't get through there so you skip over into into another lane you know reading the traffic lights it's it's just that um you know that that sense of freedom I, i think as well you know of being on a motorcycle and like you know when you've got sort of, um, you know, like your, the cities, imagine like Melbourne is a big city of like 4 million people. So you've got all these people just sitting in their cars and they're stuck. And I think that sense of, you know, you become one of the untouchables, you know, you sort of rule the road, that sort of, that sort of kind of um, mindset. But, um, you know, I, mu- I must say it's all very safe and it's not being crazy. And these people who lane split down the freeways and go 80 kilometres an hour through the traffic, that is very, very dangerous. And, um, you know, those sort of people will eventually come unstuck because somebody will move and they're going too fast to correct and, and pull up and everything is, you know, there's a bigger impact when you're travelling a lot faster on a motorcycle. Yes, uh, there's no doubt about that. Now, is, you're saying it's legal uh, to filter. Uh, is that everywhere in Australia? Uh, in It is actually, yes. Yeah, so um, are the drivers it, cool with this? Like has it been around long enough that everybody's used to it and they expect it, to see a zip by? 
it's it's um it's all quite a new thing that's been in probably about over the last two to three years. And in fact, I sit on a um, a government a state government um, motorcycle road safety advisory group. And we pushed and pushed and pushed for filtering for about four years. It took us about four years to get this in because the, the road safety authorities didn't see it as being safe. And we had to kind of convince them that it was safe. And, you know, as cities get bigger, more and more people are turning towards um, motorcycles. And this is happening um, not just in Australia. I mean, it's already in Asia. You know, you go to an Asian city and there's more scooters on the road than motorcycles because mm-hmm. – it's the most sensible, practical way to get around when you've got so much traffic congestion. And in fact, I was talking to a, a guy the other day who's a motorcycle trainer, and he said within probably the last sort of two years, um, the 70% of the people getting their motorcycle license are now getting it to commute and 30% for recreation. It wow. used to be the other way around, but yeah. now it's people are, are getting them to commute. And you know, there's a lot more, um, you know, like our cities, there's a lot more Asian people coming to, to live over in Australia because we're so close to Asia. It's just, you know, a, a normal thing to happen. And, you know, they they know the way, the only way to really get around is on a scooter. So that's we're getting a lot more people riding scooters and also just other motorcycles to, to commute. Hmm. Back in, in London, where, where we were as you were working with the courier, you ended up um, connecting with a, another courier. You, you found some love there and, and got together. Yes. Yeah, so so this book has everything. It's got sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I noticed um, the drugs, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I was going to get to that. <laughs> so, yeah, so with the rock and roll, I met um, uh, the, the lead singer of Blur, um, Matt. Damon. And so anyway, I, I briefly met him in uh, while I was couriering, delivering something for, for the band when they were, um, they were, you know, recording. And um, yeah, and so the drug part of it was all sort of recreational use. It was something completely unknown to me, but that was kind of the world I'd sort of landed in. And, um, and then um, there was another motorcycle courier who was, um, you know, that I fell in love with and then he broke my heart. Um, but it, he was also like I, I call, describe him in the book as like my Roman centurion because he really protected me through all of that. I would have never gone into that scene without um, Andy being there with me and to kind of, you know, protect me in a way. You know, what, but, what scene? Um, um, the, the, well, the, um, that sort of underworld um, rave parties and squat parties and people going, you know, taking drugs and so forth. And, like, we were, you know, during the Monday to Friday, you know, these, these guys, they worked hard. And then on the weekend, they, they, they played hard, you know. So um, that was the journey of my life at that particular time. Who's in this underground world in, in London you're talking about with the, the raves, um, the parties, the drugs? Is, is it just the motorcycle couriers? Or? Uh, yeah, it was just, I mean, there was one, there's one, um, there's different sort of these, um, you know, uh, nightclubs that you go to um, that, um, you know, would be in an old warehouse, that kind of thing. Um, so it was just, just that, I mean, that really is, the London scene um, and it always kind of has been it's always been a little bit out there a little bit alternative you know even today that would be there I mean a lot of people sort of go to London and just find themselves in in that sort of different sort of world of 
probably recreational, experimental drug use. Um, you know, like people were taking LSD in the 60s. I don't think it's really changed at all. You know, it's just just a, a, a moment in their life that they that they experience and then they moved on, which is what what I did. Um, because when I went to London, the idea was always to um, travel home on the Silk Road. To, tra- to, to me, it wasn't like, um, you know, I didn't think, oh, I really want to go and see, learn about all the history of the Silk Road. I was sort of looking more more of it as the most kind of direct route to go that was interesting and um, wouldn't take me through through Iran. I wasn't really quite. I didn't really want to go through that part of the world. Although, after you know, looking at um, what other people have done recently, it sounds like it would be very very interesting to go through through that uh, through the Middle East. So, I'd plan to. Um, go to Moscow and study Russian at the Moscow University for the winter and that was over three months because what I found when I travelled through Africa, um, particularly in the Francophone countries, these are the countries that that's, that's French, that they have their own dialects and then the, the sort of main language is French, I missed out so much in communicating with the people, you know, by not having an, enough understanding of the language. I learned a little bit of French to kind of get by but I just didn't want that same situation to happen to me in the Central Asian countries and also I'd be sort of travelling partly through Russia. So without Russian, I would have missed so much of so much in learning about the people and the culture. And this was in um, September of 1995 that, and I was going to do the winter of 95-96 in Moscow. So to get that three-month visa, okay, hang I needed... Okay, hang on one second here. You, yeah. I, I, I'm not done with the drugs yet. Uh, oh, okay. I, 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 <laughs> <laughs> I want to go back there for just one second. What kind of drugs oh, are we yeah. talking about here? Oh, it was, um, you know, um, it, uh, ecstasy and LSD. Um, they were the two main ones. And then there was, you know, the smoking of marijuana. Um, one time I, somebody, I tried some cocaine and I'm like, Oh, I don't know what you're talking about. What's there's nothing in this? I said this is how I feel all the time, you know. Because <laughs> when you're a motorcycle courier, you're pretty hyped on adrenaline, you know. You're on this buzz all the time, anyway. So um, I'm like, you know, like I don't know what you're talking about. Why you're sort of wasting your money taking that stuff? You just, you know, go and become a motorcycle courier. It's the same thing. <laughs> well, you said Andy was your protector. You're sort of your knight, I guess. That 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 sort of um, helped you through this area. It sounds like a uh, somebody who maybe took you into an area that. Um... Um, yeah, well, probably yes. Well, they, yes, that's right. And but then you know the pe- the the group I was these are you know these are people I worked with, and then they were my friends. I mean, I'd come to you know arrived in London. I didn't know anyone, so the, you know I sort of started moving in this circle anyway. So so that would have. Um, it, it would have unfolded the way it, the way it did anyway, because you know I was invited to come along. So I probably would have been a bit reluctant to to sort of go right out into the middle of sort of some um, small country area where there's a an old house, you know, in the forest, on you know on my own with a group of guys. If if um, if I didn't have Andy as as you know sort of like my my boyfriend at the time. 
Right. And, and, and this is you're, like, you're on your trip here still. What it is, is you, you were already in Africa. Now you're going to London. You're obviously from Australia. You're making your way back, but you're just sort of, I mean, you're open-ended. I, obviously you, you, you get a job, you're going to be working as a courier. That's sort of an open-ended yeah. deal. Yeah. Yeah. When I left Australia, because I was working at a, at a mine as a radiation safety technician. So I, I was getting pretty good money. I'd virtually paid off a, a house. Um, so financially I was pretty okay. Um, I had um, still I had to kind of save my money because um, it had to go a long way. But I didn't have a plan of when I would return home. I would re- uh, the trip would end when it ended. I would get go home when I'd ha- when it was time. You know, as the journey progressed, it wasn't like okay, I'm going to do one year in in Africa and I'm going to do one year in London and one year um, coming home. I, I didn't have that mindset. It was this was a, this had become like a way of life. You know, and other motorcycle travelers have done the same thing where they've sort of, you know, sold up, got a bike, packed, packed all the gear that they need and off they've gone. And they might be traveling around the world for, for, for five years and some have been for 10 years and, and some have just never stopped, you know. It's because it is a it is a great way to live. It's a very exciting, um, interesting way to, to live your life. The people you meet, um, that, that, that sort of – um, you know, unexpectedness of every day. You know, you pack your bike up in the morning and you ride down the road. You got no idea what's going to happen, where you're going to sleep that night, who you're going to meet during the day, what's going to unfold. And I think it becomes very addictive. It, it's a thrill. You know, it's a that sense of of, of freedom. Um, you know, there's no real responsibilities. Um, you know, it's not like you're going to go and pay your power bill and your rent and you know, your phone bill and all this sort of stuff. You just, there's just you and the motorcycle and, you know, and the world that you're living in and the people that you're meeting in it. And um, there's so many people are so kind. That kindness of strangers is so true. You know, you, you might see the news and you think, oh, my God, the world is a really horrible, scary, dangerous place. But, in fact, when you're out there in it, you know, people are so kind and helpful. And I found particularly traveling on my own, and I, I think this is regardless of whether you're a woman or a man, if you're on your own, you're very approachable. You know, you're, you're very you're going into countries where you're very unique and people want to find out who you are and where you're from and what you're doing. And particularly when you're on a motorcycle because, you know, motorcycles, as we all know, have serious street cred and people – People just are thrilled by them. They're, a, you know, they're a, the they're the freedom machine, the ultimate freedom machine. Um, and you're not closed off from the the people you're meeting, as I think you would be in a car. You know, you you sort of you, you're right there with the people. They can you can pull up in a village and they can come and approach you. You know, there's no barrier between you and them. So with um, what we're talking about, when when I left, yes, and, and how much money I had. I um I spent about five thousand US dollars when I was in Africa, and then when I still had money to get me home, but I wanted to um just save up a little bit more. But I also wanted to to have a bit of a break from traveling for a while, be in one spot, and I and I was like as I was saying before, really interested in trying out the motorcycle careering. Um, and then I got you know it sort of. It went on longer than I thought it would. You know, I thought I'd be just one summer and then I'd move on. But it sort of 
went, I started in September, went through the winter and I thought, oh, summer I'd leave. Um, but then I continued on. And then by September 1995, that's when I thought, okay, I don't want to do another winter in London because it is pretty hard on you. You know, you get, you know, like sometimes you get like nearly frostbite in your fingers and your toes because mm. you're riding in really cold conditions. Um, so I thought, no, I, I don't really want to do another winter in London. And that's when the idea of doing studying Moscow, uh, uh, Russian at the Moscow University sort of emerged and and, uh, and the planning went into place. I was going to say you, you were maybe too stoned to realize how long you were there, but... Uh, that was, <laughs> it's, there, there was a bit of that going on, yes, you know, it was... Sort of, yeah, but but Andy, was, Andy dumps you, right? I mean, you know, that wonderful Andy, yes, he, he ends up yes. dumping you. And and that's sort of, that's got to be your, your catalyst, or at least part of a catalyst for, okay, time to move on. Because well, I, I think at one point you moved on to a boat. Yeah, I was, um, yeah, I was living... I'd started living on a narrow boat um, about the time that that he just dumped me, and that's a you know that's what he did. Like he just you know told me one day he's met someone, and that was the end. And I was completely devastated because Andy. I was I was infatuated with this man completely. I mean, we are still in contact. I contact found tracked him down. He lives in New Zealand, and um, I sent him all the scenes from a book, and I, I said, oh, "Are you okay?" you okay with this? And he said, I just don't use my last name. You know, I'm, I'm now working in, you know, as a computer programmer and it might not go down really well, all the drugs and stuff. And, um, so he was fine with it. And he said, Oh, you know, I'm really sorry about <laughs> what happened. He said, I didn't realize it because you don't, you know, he just thought, Oh, well, it's time to move on, you know, and mm-hmm. I would be all right. But, um, but yeah, but then I met Don. So he's the next little love interest in the book and he came along at the time that was I really needed to have that support. And this is what happens, I think. And, and you know, my, if people have read Ubuntu and when they read um, Timeless on the Silk Road, there's I, I really um, kind of um, talk about this, the synchronicity of life, you know, these chance encounters and coincidences which come our way and they're kind of like, you know, guiding us to reach our our goals, our you know, achieve our, our dreams, you know, live out our destiny um that's that's kind of how what happened the people i meet on the way you know like i think we meet people that help us and and uh, and we also help other people like you know like i i found that don was very supportive of me but there's people have i've come into other people's lives and they've thought well i've been very supportive of them um you know that's just that whole you know, Ubuntu of life, you know, we are, you know, all connected. It's the, the universal bond that connects us all as one. So, um, yeah. You um, you get the itch to, to get back on the road and um, your idea for is to learn some Russian and then you um, – you, you end up applying for a visa. Now, this is a huge thing that happened to you. This is um, a, a horrible thing, a life-changing thing um, that happened to you. That, that, that... We're going to take just a very short break to thank a couple of sponsors that helped bring this episode to you today. When we come back, we're going to dig right into Heather's story because something happens here that's so terrible, I don't think you could possibly imagine, and it really changes Heather's life in so many ways. Stay with us.
Well, if you happen to catch the, the episode a couple of weeks back, we talked a little bit about our adventure, you know, moving across Canada. We're in Ontario now where the weather's a lot warmer than it was when we left. And um, here it's warm and muggy and I'm still wearing my pearly socks. Why? Because I absolutely love them. I, I got to brag about these things. I, I feel, well, I don't feel still anymore. I think it did at first, but, but uh, they just work so darn well. Pearly's possum socks. They're made with possum hair and uh, merino wool mixed together. I mean, these are top-notch socks. They're Excellent. You were you wearing riding boots for riding a motorcycle. You want some. Uh, you want a rub factor in there. You want an insulation. I don't, I'm not talking insulation from heat or cold. I'm talking just insulation from between your foot and the boot. But on top of that, you want the heat and cold. Um, they absorb sweat. They don't stink. These socks are rider socks. If you're not wearing pearly socks, you made a mistake. Just get out there and get some pearly socks. Pearly'spossumsocks.com. The link is in our show notes. Tell them we sent you. If you're riding on your stock pegs, then you're missing out on the added leverage, control, and traction that you could have if you're riding on IMS pegs. I use IMS pegs on my bike, and I've talked to many riders that listen to this show that have bought IMS pegs and absolutely love them. You can't order a set of knockoff foot pegs and get the same engineering and build quality that IMS produces. They've been building parts, that's IMS, hard parts for motorcycles since 1976. And most off-road racers use IMS. Why? Quality, design, manufacturing. No matter how you ride, IMS has you covered. From narrow to wide foot pegs, they will improve your ride. Made in the USA and warranted for life. Have a look at what they've got. IMSproducts.com. And don't forget, when you're talking to them, no matter what, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. You um, you get the itch to to get back on the road, and um, your idea for is to learn some Russian, um, and then you um, you you end up applying for a visa. Now, this is a huge thing that happened to you. This is um, a, a horrible, life changing thing um, that happened to you that, that no one would ever want. But you went into to get a visa, and what was what were the requirements for the visa? Yeah, so to get a three-month Russian visa, you need to have a HIV test. So I didn't really think anything of this. I had had um, what I call like one unguarded moment in Africa, and um, and I describe that in the book. And it's a pretty understandable sort of situation um, that we would that anyone could find themselves in, regardless of whether it was at a you know, um, a party with some people that you knew at a suburban house in Bamako in Mali or you know, a house in, in you know, a suburban house with a backyard barbecue in New York City or Melbourne or Las Vegas, uh, Los Angeles or, you know, Toronto or wherever. Um, so um, I went and had this test and um, it came back positive. And this was the time, this was September 1995. So it was a year before the, um, this new generation of HIV medications had been discovered. So at this point, being diagnosed with HIV was a death sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, I was given five years, and that's five years before I my immune system was so destroyed by the virus that I would go on and develop AIDS. What was that like when, when you when you went and picked up that result? Because you weren't expecting it. You thought it was just another thing you uh, had to do. It was a complete... Another shock. I was completely dev- it, you know, like you were. It's like here I was, thirty years old, and 
diagnosed with HIV, it was like the end. I mean, I was going to die. You know, that's that was what happened then. Like these new treatments that we have today that I take and that millions of other people take around the world, you know, 22 to 3 million people take every day. There's still like around like, um, you know, 8 million or so people who don't take these who don't have access to these treatments and if they don't they will die that's what because the virus will destroy the immune system and then you can't fight common infections like a, a pneumonia and various forms of cancer and and things like that and and, and pe- people die and that's what was happening at that time in September 1995 so um well you must have went I, back for a second test you must have like you, nobody I, wants to believe that no, well, I, I, this is where I, Don actually was um, my boyfriend at the time. I just met him. And um, fortunately, we had always used condoms. So there was no risk. I'd put him, he had a test anyway. I said to him, you know, have a test. Because he said to me, oh, look, have another have another test because maybe they got it wrong. And so we both had a test at this other um, clinic in the centre of London. And that, of course, my result came back positive. But he... You know, most guys would sort of at that, particularly at that point when, like it, it you know, there was no treatments, effective treatments. Um, they would run. I mean, he didn't run. He was there to support me. And I talk about that. You know, there's a lot of um, one thing with with I, you know, people say about my writing is, you know, I really take people into the moment because of the dialogue. You know, it's it's very much, you know, you you're there with me. You're there with me, experiencing everything I everything I'm going through. And he was sort of like talked about this as being like our fight, you know, not my fight. It was, you know, we would get over this. It was like he he was there completely to support me. And then then what happened is I I felt I didn't want to sort of bring him along with me. And I could and then I got the idea that I was going to do this one last adventure. And um, because hang on, let me sorry. Uh, so you, you're at this point, you you know you you've already been told you've had two tests. You know you're going to die. Then you look at it and you think you want to continue your trip. I'm I'm sort of curious what the thought yeah. process is here. Is what well, how you want to spend your life? Well, after that, we had that second test. I had um, they'd given me a brochure for a positive women's support group. These so these were women living with HIV. It was a support group, and it was in um, the east end of London. So um, I Don went off to back to his work. He was actually uh, working as a motorcycle mechanic, and I um, went to this support group to, to talk to these women and meet them. And so when I went there, and I described this um, scene in my book as well, um, I met these women, and they were um, – you know, living had been living with HIV for a number of years. One of them, more than five years, they were healthy. Um, they were saying, you know, nobody knows what's going on with the virus. You know, some people have got, you know, years. Some people maybe get sick very soon. Um, so you don't know. So that they gave me a lot of hope, um, and I thought, well, maybe I would be one of those people that would would not get sick. You know, maybe my body would fight this virus and I would be okay. And, you know, like in Africa, I was always okay. Like I got my, I found myself in a number of different situations. Like there was one scene in Northern Kenya when I was lost in the desert and, you know, I survived. Um, so I thought I would survive this as well. Like I would, I'm strong and I would survive. Um, so then I thought, um, you know, I would um, go go back to Australia and um, ask Don if he'd want to come with me and I would write my book and write Ubuntu because when I was told that I had HIV and I had five years to live, 
I kind of wanted to um, have something something to show for my life, but also I wanted to share these stories and share what had happened in Africa, like the that that awakening to you know universal energy, awakening to the synchronicity of life, and that you know there's some kind of power in that, like as though it's guiding us, you know, to achieve our goals, um, and also that the African people and the kindness had shown to me and the adventures I'd had, I just felt that I could, it would really inspire people. And at about the same time that um, all this was going on, I just read a book um, called The Celestine Prophecy by James Redfield. And this is a book that came out of the US about um, 1994. It was very popular. You may have heard of it. I remember Um, I read it. yeah, (laughs) Yeah. So, and I read that and I'm thinking, this is what happened to me, but like my story is real, like all that sort of coincidences and things that, that fall into place. And that, that really had a big impact on me. And also, you know, when you're um, diagnosed with, with, you know, a, a life-threatening illness, um, you kind of do turn to um, to hope and you turn to spirituality um, when there is no hope anywhere else. So I was kind of in that mindset and um, so it was a combination of like that book and um, and then um, wanting to write my story, which is we went, Don and I went back to Australia. And about this time, my parents grow bananas um, in North Queensland. So I didn't tell my parents about the fact that I had HIV. I definitely wasn't going to tell them. I didn't want to worry them. Um, I didn't want to deal with um, their rejection. Um, so I thought, well, maybe, you know, I will never get sick. Maybe they never need to know. So they, at that time, I didn't tell them. Um, I did many years later tell them. And of course I had all their support. Um, so what do you mean when rejection I, though, what, what did you expect for rejection? Um, because of the stigma associated with HIV, you know, like, and especially people then, do, yeah, uh, even today, even today, there is still so much stigma associated with HIV and people are still afraid to tell their families and get that support from their families and their, from, from their friends. They're afraid and people might find out. They're afraid that their employer might find out and then they'll get the sack. Um, there is, you know, that, you know, people, their work colleagues or their friends might not want to have anything to do with them because they think, oh, well, I'm going to catch it. Um, you know, there's stories where, you know, family members, say a, a man or a woman may be diagnosed with HIV and, their, their brother or sister who've got some young children won't let them into their house because they think that their children will, will catch the HIV, and that's not the case. Like, you can't catch it by kissing and touching and sharing coffee cups. Um, in fact, these days you can't catch it virtually at all when the person living with HIV is on um the medications that we have today. They suppress the virus to undetectable levels to such a, a low degree that there's virtually no virus left in their body. You know, the medications I take today, to me, are as good as a cure. You know, I'm go- probably going to live, I'll live longer than most other people. I'll die of old age somewhere. <laughs> so hopefully I'll have a motorcycle in some exotic place, um, you know, out there in the world. Um, so, yeah, so I came back to Australia, wrote the, the manuscript for Ubuntu, and, um, and you know, Don left. He was only in Australia for a few um, a, a month or so, um, because it was um, it was quite hard for him to come out from London and never travel before and end up on it working on a banana farm in the tropical heat of a, of November um, in in Australia, a tropical you know summer. Um, and he just 
this thought, nah, this is not for me. So he said, I'm going back. So he went back. And when I went back after I'd written the manuscript, this was in April um, 1996, I, we, we kind of grown apart. And I then had got the idea that I wanted to continue traveling and he didn't want to travel with me. That wasn't for him. So we just sort of drifted apart. And today we're still in contact. So there's no, no hard feelings. It was just, it was just one of those things that, that, you know, that was the way it was. And, and also I, I was sort of in the mindset I wanted to kind of deal with all this then on my own. And um, and so I could get a visa for Russia um, for one month without having a HIV test. That was fine. So um, I packed my bike and this was in November 1996. Um, so when I went back in April, I, I went back to Korean for a little while and actually hated it. I thought, my God, what am I doing? This is so dangerous. <laughs> and, um, you know, I'd been out of it. I couldn't get a publisher for my book. So I thought, well, okay, I'll put that aside and I'll deal with that later on. But I'd sort of wanted to sort of go on this one last adventure, you know, this one last search for meaning on um, the Silk Roads of Central Asia. So, I, so, so hang on. So this is one last adventure, one last search for meaning. Because you, you, even though you're you're thinking that maybe you're going to be the one that doesn't get sick, you sort of have it in your head that the, the end is near. Well, it could be. Yeah, it was sort of like this pendulum of denial, acceptance, um, fear, um, and hope um, was going on in my head constantly. And I talk about in the book this thing um, in Aboriginal culture and it's called pointing the bone. So um, the spiritual man in an Aboriginal tribe will have a, a kangaroo bone, a long, thin, pointy kangaroo bone, um, and he will, when somebody in the tribe has committed a crime, um, the Kadaich, what they call the Kadaichi man, the spiritual man, will point this bone at the, um, the person who has committed the crime, and um, when that happens, it's like you're going to die. So that person who's had been the you know subjected to a pointing, um, they will think they're going to die, and they will die. They will will themselves to die, um, and that was kind of what was happening to me. I, constantly in my head, that was going over and over and over: is I'm going to die, I'm going to die. Um, the only the, the good thing is, is when I was traveling, because um, I was having these amazing experiences in this um, stunning landscape in the, a, an ancient culture that is the cradle of our civilization, um, meeting people that, that, that their kindness was was enormous. Um, like in Turkey, I, I don't think I spent any money on food <laughs> or accommodation. I, well, I was camping at Roadside Cafe, so I was in my tent. But, you know, people constantly fed me um, and in places like Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan plied me with lots of vodka. You drink lots of vodka in all those countries. Um, but, um, it, you know, I just then it sort of became like a bit of a, a an echo, a faint echo at the back of my mind, like it was still there. And But it wasn't so all-consuming as it had been when I started out on the journey because um, that was kind of at that point the only thing that was sort of going on in my head. So I ended up like leaving London. I worked in a, a ski resort in Austria for the winter. I thought that would be a good place to lay over um, rather than working in London. And then I um, travelled through Italy and then Greece. And Tur when I got into Turkey – 
it was a very late um, spring, so it was still very, very cold in in April. And I ended up working in a hostel in Istanbul, um, and that was around the time of Anzac Day, which is a is a is a really prominent day for Australian people, where we honour the Anzacs, the soldiers that died in World War One in the um, Gallipoli campaign, um, which was in, you know fighting the, the Turkish. But what's happened out of that is, you know, there was many um, stories of bravery, and the Turkish people and the Australian people are very, very closely connected, and we really honour each other. We honour our bravery between the two sides. And when I was in Turkey, you know, people knowing I was Australian, they always wanted to help me and support me and do whatever they could for me. And it was ama- really amazing the, the response I had. It's, it, I find it curious that when we're told, you know, you hear the stories of someone being told that they only have so long to live, that somehow there's, there's, um, this is supposed to be a different way that we look at life at that point. And, you know, everyone, you, know, you hear the, even in songs, you'll hear sometimes, you know, one song comes to mind where it's, you know, if, if you knew today was your last day. The thing is, though, none of us know when our last day is. I mean, tomorrow could be anyone's last day today. Yet we seem to, when we get notice of something, we say, okay, it's impending, you know, it's coming, that we're supposed to look at things differently. Why is that? Yeah. Um, because we're made aware of our own mortality up until that point, um, and I, and this was me at thirty when I was diagnosed. I just thought I'd live forever. I, I didn't think about sure. dying and that my life would at some point end. I mean, you don't do that. Maybe you might start thinking like that when you're seventy or eighty, um, thinking, oh well, you know, I've probably got twenty years left or ten years left, um, but. At that age, you don't think like that. So when you, when it's sort of thrust upon you, you, you really start looking at well, okay, what do I want to do? Do I want to go back to Australia and wait to die, you know, with my parents, um, and just have, um, you know, sort of always feeling um, a sense of shame in a way? I mean. You know, like dying from AIDS is not a respectable death. You know, even having HIV, you know, there's so much stigma around it. It's a, it's a, you know, a, a sexually transmitted infection. So, you know, there's that constant, all that taboo around, around sex and so forth. Um, so I didn't want to deal with that. I thought, no, I'm going to have my one last adventure and see what happens. On top of all of that, there was always also this feeling that um, if I went back on the road, I would like reconnect with this universal energy, which I, I sort of became aware of in Africa on that, that first trip. Because prior to going to Africa, you know, I had no sense of spirituality at all. You know, I was like a complete atheist in every shape and form. And it was only on that trip and all these things started to happen. And traveling alone, you, you tend to think a lot deeper about the meaning of things. So um, so that was also why I went back on the road as well. It wasn't just to have the last adventure. It was always a, a sense of searching for hope, you know, searching for, um, you know, a cure from, a, from higher above, you know, that I would be saved in some way. There was also a sense of that going on. 
So when you look at what the alternative was, you know, go back to Australia, back to my parents, sit around, wait, wait to die, or pack my motorcycle, go off and have an adventure and maybe be, be saved, you know. Um, but what else was also going on about this time is um, an American Taiwanese doctor researcher in America, Dr. David Ho, and his team have just discovered this new generation of HIV medications. Um, and But they were just in the trials stage. And so the doctors in London didn't really know about these new medications. And also they could have been just like other ones which had been um, discovered in, you know, in the very beginning of the the pandemic of HIV. So which were kind of like might give you a few more years, but they weren't, you know, very effective in controlling the virus. So nobody told me about these new medications. And this was like still kind of on the verge, just on the verge of the internet. So I didn't really know anything about, you know, Dr. Google. Um, so so well, I, Google wasn't around then. I think it was Alta yeah, Vista and Alta, some other yeah, ones. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't know anything about sort of accessing information on the internet as we do today. Um, so I just had the doctors, to, whatever they told me is I just um, took as gospel. That was the information and there was nothing else I could do about it. And, you know, I sort of said to them, well, what about, is there any medications I can take? They said, well, they're not very effective and you're healthy because I was healthy. I wasn't sick at all at this time. So there was no point in taking anything. And, in fact, the medications they were prescribing to people um, when they were very sick were actually very toxic and doing you know, probably more damage than, than the virus was to their body. So, mm. You decided to, to do the Silk Road. What is this Silk Road and, and why that route? Well, it well to me it was like the, it, it, it's the easiest way basically to go from, from, you know, the Northern Hemisphere to the Southern Hemisphere, um, uh, you know, because it takes you from um, through Europe, Turkey, Georgia, Azerbaijan, across the Caspian, um, into Turkmenistan, um, Kyrgyzstan, and from there I wasn't quite sure which way I would go. And um, in the book I sort of talk about how I'm kind of like stuck in that part of the world. Um, one is um, the issue with my bike getting it into China. Um, I had a, a visa for China, which I got when I was in Kazakhstan in Almaty. And, um, but I wanted to – my preference was to go through Kyrgyzstan – the Togat Pass and then into Tibet to Kashgar and then Tibet and then down through um, Nepal and India and then over through across to um, Southeast Asia and back to, um, you know, through Indonesia and then back to, to to Northern Australia. That was my preferred route to take. But I couldn't get into um, China from Kyrgyzstan because it with I could go, but not with my motorcycle. I didn't have a permit for a motorcycle. You cannot just go into China with your own vehicle and ride around willy nilly. You've got to have, um, you know, uh, a guide, um, which then they have to have a driver, and then they have to have a cook. Um, then there has to be a translator, and that's all to accompany you on a set designated route that you have put in your application to the Chinese government to then travel on that way through China. And that can cost $20,000 or, or more. Wow. Yeah. 
seventeen, dollars to $20,000 because you have to pay all these other people and you have to pay a fee and so forth. Um, so it's not that easy. So I couldn't get through that way. I, I kind of tried because in, in Africa, you know, like some of the borders are a little bit, you know, like you just slip through or, or it wasn't like I slipped through. I would get my passport stamped, but some of sometimes my carnet de passage, which is like your passport for your vehicle, it wasn't valid for a particular country. Um, so I would kind of just not go into the customs area and go through. And I, um, and these border posts were like basically like a little mud hut on the side of the road because you'd pick a very isolated crossing. Um, so I kind of thought it would be the same thing in Central Asia, but you know, you don't kind of, the Chinese government takes things a little bit more seriously. So, um, there was no way I was going to be able to slip through. And, um, I, I tried another way to get into, um, I thought I'd go into Russia and then from Russia into Mongolia. And I tried another, um, sort of to get through this border crossing, um, another little small crossing, um, from uh, in Siberia into Mongolia um, at a place called Tashanta. Um, now it's actually quite a big setup, but then it was just like a little kind of tin hut, and um, and again I couldn't I couldn't get through. And it's quite a funny scene about how I how I tried. And the Mongolians were helping me, and you know, sort of saying, "Oh, the Russian soldiers will just be drinking their vodka and they won't be paying any attention." You know, just riding. Tell that story. Well, um, well, so I ended up at this Tashanta border crossing and spoke to the Russians and they said, no, you, this border crossing is only for Russians and Mongolians, not for foreigners, you know, um, go away. <laughs> so, and then as I was, as I was um, sort of deliberating about what I should do, um, there was a, a truck full of Mongolians and and they sort of said, oh, you know, the Russians won't let you let you through. Oh, don't worry about them. Um, just ride beside our truck and they'll, just, they'll go back into their hut and they'll be drinking vodka and they won't know, so don't worry about them. So I thought, oh, okay, then no worries. And um, so as the truck took off, I was riding beside the big wheels on the other side so the Russian um, soldiers wouldn't see me. But as I was nearly at the Mongolian checkpoint, because if I'd got into Mongolia, the Mongolians, because I had a visa for Mongolia, they would be no problem. Oh, you know, you're welcome and, you know, come into our beautiful country. And um, so as I was about to get to the border, the the Mongolian soldiers or customs officials stood in front of the truck and was waving for it to stop because the Russians were, you know, at their hut pointing their AK-47s at me. Um, ready to shoot me if I didn't stop. So, oh. so I stopped. So this course. is like a little narrow stretch of Russia you have to cross to get to Mongolia. Yeah, just a you know at a border crossing. Yeah, it was quite unknown back then. It was only you know for the sort of the local Mongolians and the local Russians, you know, moving backwards and forth. It wasn't sort of you know a main crossing, and the road was quite rough to get to Alambator. It was mainly. Um, that's a lot of dirt. Um, and I think actually it was the way that um, Ewan McGregor and Charlie Borman went on their long way round trip. But then they had the permission. So they actually contacted the Russian government and got all the permissions and for them all to go through that way. I didn't. I just sort of turned up. And um, so then when I got, you know, rode back to the Russians and um, the Russian soldier said, you know, like, 
you know, this is a gun and it shoots bullets and <laughs> and we will shoot you, you know. So wow. uh, yeah. And and then, then I was sort of deliberating then what I was going to do. And um, this Russian soldier came out and he said, well, you know, if you go to the next village and go and speak to the, um, you know, the person in charge there and they can give you permission to cross, then you can cross. So I went back and he said, no, you then have to go to the governor's, um, the next town to speak to the governor of the Altai district, which is what I did. But he was in uh, Moscow for the summer and nobody knew when he was coming back. Um, so that's when I went back to um, Almaty to then try again. <laughs> that was when I went to, to, to try to get into China through the Togart Pass. So, um, yeah, so that was all these little adventures I had on the way. And, in fact, prior to that rush, that border crossing, I actually got pulled up by the um, – the Russian police as I went through this town called Barnell. And um, because my visa had expired by a month at this time and I had kind of slipped into Russia through this border crossing, it was just a boom gate, like a wooden boom gate, and it was up. And I thought, oh, well, there's nobody there. I'll just keep riding. And um, and they sort of interrogated me and threatened to deport me to Moscow and at my expense and, you know, the bike would be dumped and all this kind of thing. And I thought that was the end of it. And then after about, you know, an hour or so, they came back in and said, oh, you, we'll escort you out of the town and you go back to Kazakhstan and don't come back. So um, they followed me for about five kilometres or so out of the town and I then they, they turned around and went back and I stopped and then deliberated what I would do and I um, decided to keep going into Russia and because I figured the police would be on their shift change and, you know, police all over the world have have a shift change about, about 4 to 5 o'clock in the afternoon and there would be no police around and I could slip through this other little bridge across this big river and away I went. Yeah, so that's what I did. But, again, all these things are kind of happened because you know to me it was like well I'm dying anyway you know you you tend to not worry about rules and regulations and you know I'm not advocating that people do this and travel this way it's just how I was at that time you know like um you know that was this was again like my one last adventure and you know when you've got only one last adventure you kind of really don't worry about you know how you go about it um, so, and at this time, you know, my health was really good. You know, I was, it, it was, um, it was only kind of towards the, the end of that time on the Silk Road, um, which, it, you know, my health started slowly deteriorating, which was because of virus, you know, I was unchecked. I wasn't, there was no medications to control it. So it was slowly you know, destroying my immune system, which the beginning of that is is like feeling very tired all the time and getting weak and then like my hair started falling out and um, then you sort of, you know, just start losing weight and and um, so, yeah, that sort of started slowly happening as I was getting towards the end of that trip. So, but getting back to the Silk Road, you're just asking me about, um, you know, what it is. It, it's a an international trading route that was used um, for people to, particularly Chinese, to move, um, you know, silks and uh, spices and pottery and jewellery um, all through 
from China and into the Western part of the world, into Europe, um, but also, um, you know, other like big cities that were in those um, Central Asia at the time, like Bukharu in Uzbekistan, which is like being in a living museum, um, and um, places like Merv, which was destroyed completely to the ground by Genghis Khan. And some of those goods will then be taken on and eventually end up in places like Venice and, and make their way all the way to London. I mean, London was really the, the far distant end of the Silk Road, while, um, say, Beijing was the far distant eastern part of the Silk Road um, and those it, it was like a you know super highways of trade um, and the Chinese government is now investing like a trillion dollars into that region um, in their what they call a one road one belt project which is to open up um, the highways the roads rail um, to transporting um, Chinese goods right through Central Asia to India and all the way into Europe and up into Russia. Sounds like a, like a huge sort of Indiana Jones adventure or something. Was, was it all fun? <laughs> was it was it all fun and adventure? Or I mean, or, or are you being um, dragged down by the thought of what's happening to you and what what's predicted for you? Because I, because this the scenery in this part of the world is just enormously stunning. You know, these massive mountains, the Pamirs and the Tian Shan, you know, this is a massive mountain, snow-capped mountains and, and valleys, green valleys where, you know, horses are galloping around and, you know, nomads living in their yurts. And it, it was and, – and some of the roads were, you know, motorcycle travel heaven. There were beautiful mountain roads winding up the sides of mountains and spectacular views. I mean – when you've confronted with that sort of vista, you tend to really kind of live in the moment. So I was very much living in what was in front of me rather than thinking about what might happen to me in a year's time or two years' time. Um, it wasn't that case when I started the journey. It was very much I'm going to die, you know, I've only got five years to live, you know, I'm going to get sick, all this sort of stuff. And, and that sort of – I had moments of that come back occasionally as well like you know I would feel very very down about things but most of the time I was just living this crazy adventure um, and I was very much living in the moment and I think that's what you know this overland travel does to you is you know there's so much going on that you do just think of exactly this moment this point in time rather than you know what's going to happen tomorrow you know you tend not to to worry so much about things and and also what was happening to me is because you know this whole philosophy which I sort of started tapping into when I was in Africa of like nothing bad happened yesterday and nothing bad has happened today so therefore nothing bad is going to happen tomorrow you know I will be okay I'm okay today I'll be okay tomorrow so it was like worry had been kind of taken out of the equation you know I didn't worry so much anymore and and that was all because of you know that that's unpredictability of the journey and the and how things unfolded and the adventures I was having I mean I met these um in the book there's this one month of my travels um I traveled with three Frenchmen and we're still in contact you know they're they, they're really good fun guys um there was moments when <laughs> when it wasn't so fun um because I'd sort of 
convinced them to take a back road from Kazakhstan over the Altai Mountains into Siberia because I knew that with my expired Russian visa, I couldn't get across the normal crossing. They just wouldn't let me back. Um, so I kind of came up with this plan <laughs> to convince them to go on this adventure and 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 they you're, you're, hang on, you're convincing them to go on the adventure as if it's an adventure, but really you're trying to scoot around the, the technical problem. I'm yes, I'm trying to scoot around the you know the the borders, the main border. Um, and this I could see that those two villages on this map, and I thought, well, there's got to be a road between them over the mountains. I mean, the local people would be using it, and I thought, and there won't be a border crossing once we're there. We're we're right, you know, and off we went. But um, it was a very difficult road to, to travel on, you know, even with motorcycles. And um, we ended up um, in this valley. We were nearly act- actually, we were in Siberia and we'd nearly reached this, this town that we were aiming for. And But the, it was a late um, um, winter or very wet spring, you know, early spring. So this whole valley was like a bog and there's no way we could ride our motorcycles across it. So we had to turn back and, and, um, but, you know, during that sort of, oh, we're about a week in the Altai Mountains and, you know, the, the, you know, the riding we did and the, we met up, met up with these Russian cattlemen and stayed in their hut and, um, um, but it, you know, it was just one of those adventures he went on and the, the, the Frenchman always say, he said, oh, this was the most exciting time of our, our, tr- our trip from Paris. Mm. When you, um, you mentioned that, uh, you know, staying on the road is, or when, when you're on the road and you're traveling that it's, um, you know, you're, I guess you're, 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 you're not having to worry about being in the moment because you're in the moment. And, and it makes me think a lot about society nowadays. I, I think part of our reason that we're, we have to worry so much about being in the moment or trying to get ourselves to think about being in the moment is the fact that our, our lives are so much easier. I mean, you know, if you, if you went back a hundred years, you didn't have to worry about the moment because you had to work to survive. You know, you're, you're doing things that are very manual and that's sort of what you're doing your travel, isn't it? You're, 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 um, you're always busy. There's always something happening to you. There's always something coming up, always something to deal with. Yeah. Well, you, um, I mean, the, the way I sort of, you know, would work is, is I never kind of worried about where I would stay that evening. And, um, I remember with the Frenchman, you know, they would, um, they'd sort of say, Oh, I like, we'd look at the map. Oh, where do you think we're going to stay tonight? I said, well, I don't know. I don't worry about that when, you know, or five o'clock like I'd never rode at night you know that's when things get dangerous if you're on the road in a strange place on roads littered with potholes and so forth at night um and so I'll just say don't worry about it something will turn up because it always did you know and uh so you know like it's quite uncanny how this unfolds where you know be riding along and oh yeah there's like a roadside cafe and looks like a nice place to stop you know and the great thing about these sort of roadside cafes when you're traveling in these countries is they're often sort of run by a family. So you're under the protection of the family. This is their business. You know, they provide food and, and sell vodka and things to passing truck drivers and motorists. And people might, um, sometimes they might have a little place, you know, rooms for people to stay. Um, normally not. It's just their house or yurt and, and, um, and they just, you know, grill some what they call sheshlik, which is like meat on sticks, which you eat a lot of when you're in Central Asia. Um, and you can just pitch your tent and then you buy some sheshlik and a bottle of vodka and, you know, you, everything is provided for you. Um, so it's it's sort of um, not so much about you know worrying you know being um, difficult to travel. 
everything kind of unfolds very you know organically it just it just happens um particularly also in places like kyrgyzstan there's very few hotels so it's quite acceptable to really just knock on someone's door and say can i stay tonight um which is what i did at, um that with the um the family in the yurt i wanted to have the the you know the nomad experience. I was leaving Kyrgyzstan. I sort of wanted to hang out with the the nomads for a few days and 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 spend some time with them and their horses because they milk the mares for the mares milk, which they make kumis, which is like an alcoholic drink. And um, um, and you know when I left, I sort of said to the older boys, oh, like you know you could you could make a really good business doing this because, you know, people want to see, they want to come and do this. They want to, you know, experience a nomad life. And he like smiled at me. And and now today you can actually book a yurt on this lake, Sun Coal Lake in Kogosan through Airbnb. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, so, you know, you can just book it before you go and stay with the, the nomads in their yurt because they've all got mobile phones and everything now, like, you know, and it's fantastic because they're making a little bit of money during the summer because these nomads just live in these yurts during the summer. Um, in the winter, this area is all, you know, it's high. These are high alpine valleys um, all covered in snow, you know, feet of snow. So they move back to the lowlands, to the towns and to their where they'll have a farm where they keep their animals. So they just bring them up to the high country in the summer to, to really fatten them up on all this beautiful lush grass. And um, and all the mares have got their foals and they milk milk the mares and make the, the kumis, which they sell as well. It's fermented. It's like a low alcoholic drink, about you know 2% alcohol, and it's very popular and it's quite nice to drink as well. Have you always been like this, uh, you know, that you have no fear of going up and knocking on a stranger's door and asking for a place to live, traveling alone into remote places? Is that something that, that you know, has, has always uh, been your personality uh, type or something you've developed over uh, travel? I, th- I developed it over travel. I mean, I'm pretty, like, you know, I grew up in Outback Australia and then I was working in um, the Northern Territory. So, but, Well, that should make you more introverted, I would think, you know, less connection with people. I, no, it's kind of where, you know, you're used to people being very friendly. You know, um, Outback people and, and country people in Australia are very open, very friendly and very welcoming. Mm. And so um, I kind of had that attitude. I think that was my foundation. And then going to Africa, it was like, um, you know, when sort of, sort of things happened and then people would help help me, um, I found that, well, you know, people are so kind and helpful. And um, so, and I also then even got into the habit of pulling up at a, say, a, a small village. I'd see a few mud huts in the distance and ride off the road and turn up and just say, oh, can I camp here? Because you know, as a woman, I can't just pull up and camp in the middle of nowhere. You know, like Africa is one village and people would have heard my motorcycle and I would be alone. Anybody could come along and I would have nobody to, to you know, protect me. But if I turned up in a village and asked if I could camp, then the, the, the head man or chief of the village would say yes. Then I would be under the protection, his protection. I'd be under the protection of the whole village. And I always try and take something for the table, like I would have loaves of bread or sugar or tea or, you know, a bag of flour or something that I could uh, hear, you know, can I give you this kind of thing? Um, and then I could sort of sit around with the women and watch them cook and just, you know, it just enjoy, it just absorb the, the culture and the experience. Um, so I kind of, tr- you know, transferred that 
way of living to the Silk Road. So I, I did the same kind of thing of just sort of, you know, hello, I'm here. Can I stay? Like in my tent, you know, I have a tent. I'm, you know, I think, well, you know, I'm, I don't, it's one of one small piece of ground. But, you know, people would say, oh, come and I have a bed for you, you know, sleep in my house and, and I give you some food. So, um, yeah, that was, it was always fantastic. I, you know, I had a photo album with me with all these photos from Australia and Australian animals and my parents as banana farmers and, you know, my horse, which went down really well in, in these um, Central Asia because it's a very horse culture. So because, of, you know, me riding a horse, you know, I'm, I'm sort of, yeah, you know, one of them kind of thing. And um, so it, that was always very, um, you know, a, a story to share. Like, you know, they could see where I came from. I had my map and I'd show them on the map where I'd, where I'd been and where I'd planned to go. So it was kind of like a, you know, an exchange of of ideas in a way, like we'll communicate. You know, I was I'd come into their life and I was different from a different world and, and I was really interested in their way of life and they were interested in my way of life. So it's that kind of, you know, sharing of, of, of cultures in a way. You Did know? you take so, the, those photographs with you f- for that reason? Was that the reason you're carrying yeah, the album? Yeah, 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 to share. So people, because when you've got a language barrier, you know, like I turn up on their doorstep and like they want to know where I'm from, who I am, you know, whether I have a husband and children and if not, you know, why not usually. <laughs> and um, and like, you know, who are my family, who's my family and what does my family do and where do I live in Australia and what does Australia look like? Um, so, so that's all the photos can you know they you know a picture tells a thousand words so but I I did learn a little bit of Russian I mean you do when you're traveling in a country particularly one that doesn't we it's hard to find hardly anyone who can speak English you know I found a few people with a a smattering of English Um, so I picked up quite a bit of Russian and just to get by so with the photos and with my little bit of Russian and their little bit of English um, you know we sort of managed to sort of have an understanding. I mean, today you've got Google Translate, so <laughs> it doesn't matter. I think that's why you just put it on audio and, you know, sort of type something in or say something into it and, you know, hold it up and it repeats and you could, you know, yeah, it's like having a, you know, the burble fish from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> you, you got home. Um, you, you were sick. At what point did you find out about the, these drugs that have changed your life, that, that have made um, your life? Yeah. So I was in, I'll just sort of take a little bit step back. I, I got to Hanoi and um, and I hadn't stayed anywhere with a mirror for many, many months, like since Europe. So I had never looked at myself and I write about in the book about this and and I, I'm, I'd just gotten out the shower and I sort of dropped the towel and I'm standing naked in front of the mirror and I just could see how, you know, emaciated I was, like how sick I was, you know. And um, and I had this, um, one of the things that people with um, um, AIDS, you know, one of the AIDS-defining illnesses, so this is when your immune system is um, very, very depleted, you know, you've got, um, hardly any of these what they call T cells left, and you're very susceptible to um, very you know cancers and things like that. And one of them is called Kaposi's. Um, uh, it's like a, ca- a skin cancer, and I had it's like a big angry purpley raised welt on your skin, and I had this on my shoulder, and I'm like, what? You know, um, a lot of my hair had fallen out, 
and I just something in my in me, you know, because it's like my body always wanted to survive. And this kind of is a theme that runs through the book. It's like, you know, my body was on its own kind of mission and looking for things to to make it healthy and, and to boost its immune system, like to boot to boost its arsenal of weaponry. Um, and so there's a like a, a theme of, of health and well being that that kind of trickles through the book um, that I kind of tap into um, through the different people I meet and the different experiences I'm having that my body's like wanting to get strong. Um, so in this scene in Hanoi where I'm standing in front of this mirror in this hotel room, it's like my body had sort of take, decided to take over and, and just say to me, you have to get to a hospital. You know, you need to get to a hospital. And um, one of the things I kind of, learned from all my traveling is to really trust your intuition so it's like my intuition was telling me this was time it was time to go home now right now you know immediately get on a plane as soon as I could so I put my bike in storage in Hanoi and then I um when I'd done that that afternoon on the way back I booked a flight which was leaving the following morning and got back to Australia and turned up on my parents doorstep and they're like horrified and I'm like, oh, don't worry, you know, I've just picked up a stomach bug in China, um, I'll be all right. Um, so then I contacted um, a sort of HIV support group in Cairns and told them my story and they said, well, get yourself up to Cairns straight away, you have to get into hospital, you're very sick. Um, so I just told my parents, oh, look, I'm going on my, you know, going to stay with a friend in Cairns and get a job and this is like the ne next chapter of my life and off I went. Um, and so I got into hospital and they, all the treatments had been, you know, well discovered by now and were really well in use. So they hooked me up to these on an intravenous drip and 10 days later I was out of hospital. And two months after that I was um, studying journalism full-time at university I was the editor of the student magazine. I was the um, uh, part of the environment group. I led a, um, a, a convoy of protesters to protest against a new uranium mine that they, they wanted to build. Um, you know, I sort of had this new lease of life, and to me I wanted to do everything, and I, I kind of still do in a way. <laughs> I'm still involved in far too many things um, because to me, you know, life is really short and I see all these different opportunities and I just kind of can't say no. I just really, you know, life excites me and I, and I just love it so much because I've had this second opportunity and um, I just wish so many more people would, you know, become aware of their own mortality. Incredible. I mean, if it had been um, just a few months later, by the sounds of it, it could have been too late. That oh, very. I was very close. In fact, when I got into hospital, and um, you know, the the nurses kept saying to me, "Oh, you know, you've really got to tell your parents. You should contact your parents." And I was like, oh, "I'll be fine. Don't worry about it. I'll get over this. You know, they don't need to know. I still don't didn't want to tell them. You know, I just didn't." was you know I didn't want to worry them uh this was like my fight you know I was um afraid of their reaction um but I just didn't want to face that that was just going to be that would be too much um and then the doctor said to me oh you know would you like to see the chaplain because that's what they asked 
people who are about to die. And I'm like, oh, no, no, I'll be fine. And um, But when I went back to the clinic, because I used to have to go back every now and again and get my medications um, and um, I have blood tests just to see how things were going in my body, and the nurses would, you know, give me a hug and say, you like, we nearly lost you, we nearly lost you, you know. Um, so, yeah, and, I mean, the sad thing is even today, like in the Western world where people do have access to treatments that, that will save you that, that are as good as a cure, you know, people get sick um, and they don't realise they've got HIV and they might get a really bad pneumonia and they just ignore it, ignore it, ignore it, and then they go to the doctor and the doctor doesn't even think about HIV because that person might be a, a teacher or a businessman or something like that and um, they're not like what they call a high-risk category and so they don't even test for HIV and then people, um, you know, people are still dying of AIDS, when they don't need to because they've, it's been too late, particularly with this pneumonia called PCP. Um, you know, if you can't, if you don't get that in time, it, it, it will kill you. Um, and so, you know, that this is what's happening in Australia, in fact. Um, you know, we're, we're getting more people turning up what they call late-stage diagnosis because they've never been tested for HIV. They don't go to the doctor until they're really sick. And then the doctor, after a while, after they've tested for everything else, they might think, oh, maybe we should test for HIV. And then they find out and then they give them the treatments and and they immediately recover. So, and, you know, go on to live long, healthy, happy, productive lives and have children and get married and well, get married and have children and, um, <laughs> you know, Which is what you've done because yeah. now you've yeah. got the three kids at home. I've got three kids, yeah. And so they all came a long time after my travels. You know, um, my first child I had when I was 40 and he's nearly 15. Um, and the other, I've had twins as well and they're 12. Um, so, and they're all healthy and there was no risk to them getting HIV because. I was on the treatments and, um, you know, it's like what they call um, undetectable. It's like undetectable viral load equals untransmittable. Um, so U equals U. And that, that, that started by a man in New York, an American man, who um, uh, coined that phrase, U equals U, and that's sort of gone out into the world and, and is like there's a, a, an international um, campaign now to, to really raise awareness about HIV and for people to get tested and um, to fight stigma and to let people know about U equals U, that not to be, you know, afraid of people, you know, if they say, if they have um, meet somebody that's got HIV and they want to have a relationship and they think, oh, my God, what am I going to do? You know, there's, this takes all that fear away because they can't, you know, they cannot get um, the virus from um, an infected person when they're on treatments. Because the, the treatments were as good as the cure. They suppress the virus to such a low level that it's virtually eliminated from the body. Um, you know, there's small, tiny reservoirs that might live, you know, deep down into some little deep corner of the bone marrow, um, but it's not in the bloodstream. So if you stop taking the treatments, then that virus will slowly start replicating and over a period of months slowly, you know, get stronger and stronger and, you know, be back. To, to how it was when, um, you know, before you took I took treatments. Life is pretty short when you come to think of it and, you know, we shouldn't put off living our dreams. If you've got a dream to, to you know, travel or start a new business or whatever it happens to be, 
you know, and it really feels right. Like it feels so right inside you to do it. Just do it because I, I think once you start taking that first step, everything else will fall into place. You know, that's what I found. It, it just little, you know, little, little, little subtle coincidences and chance encounters happen, which all kind of help, kind of to help you achieve your your goal or your dream, whatever that happens to be. The book is Timeless on the Silk Road, an odyssey from London to Hanoi. Heather, great to talk to you. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was Heather Ellis, the author of two books, her first one called Ubuntu, One Woman's Motorcycle Odyssey Across Africa. And this new book, the one we just talked about, is called Timeless on the Silk Road, an odyssey from London to Hanoi, available from her website, heather-ellis.com and from Amazon. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com. Also, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com, Green Chili Adventure Gear at greenchiliadv.com, and Moto Breeze Chain Oilers at motobreeze.com. Hey, you do us a great favor. If anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime you see them anywhere, you mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. up another episode of adventure rider radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it special thanks of course to our producer elizabeth martin and to you the listener of course we wouldn't do it without you there would be no point hey if you like what you're hearing you want to hear more drop by our website adventureriderradio.com we've got a full lineup the full digital box set of adventure rider radio dating way back actually dating back five years can you believe this and there's all kinds of stuff to listen to there help yourself listen to anything you want also we've got our other show arr raw that comes out once a month you have to subscribe separately to that show so make sure you go to your your favorite place for listening to podcasts and subscribe separately and you can do us a favor by giving us a rating for our shows everywhere you see the podcast listed my name is Jim Martin. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. And hey, if you'd like to help the show out, it's built on a model of some advertising and listener support to make the whole thing work. Um, we would love it if you would become a show supporter. Drop by our website and click on the support button. Thanks very much. See you next week. My name is Austin Vince and I'm on Adventure Rider Radio. If you're listening to this, you rule me. <laughs>